You're now listening to The Sound of Sanity. This sound will continue for the duration of the program. Hello, welcome to Sound of Sanity. Glad you could join us today. I am Nathan, your humble and obedient host. We've got Ben, the preacher, who's the teacher of sanity right there. Oh, hello. Why don't you introduce the other guy? Why, Donnie, <laughs> Will, bless you. <laughs> other guy. It's Pastor Jake oh. Menzel. Pastor Jake Menzel. He's the pastor who's a master of sanity. Yep. He just comedically reached for the tissues and knocked them off the table where he could not reach <laughs> and he them. Slipped on a banana peel. And he slipped on a banana <laughs> Turned peel. <a> flip, <laughs> laying it on his tiny. Oh man, it, it was, was classic. Good stuff. That Jake <laughs> stood up, uh, fell into a manhole. <laughs> well, he's back now. Listen, folks, we are going to talk about Christian nationalism today. What can I say except for you're welcome? But first, a fundraising update. Warhorn Media is attempting to make its fundraising goals for the end of the year. And where are we at, Jake? And what do people need to do? As of this recording, we are at $8,400 of our goal of $60,000. $60,000 is what we need in order to make it, in, in order to survive 2023, probably. So... It's normal for us to be in a position like this at the end of every year. This year is a little bit more challenging than previous years. It's going to take a little bit more, and we know that it's harder on everybody as we're headed into another year of, let's face it, recession, inflation, uncertainty. So what we need people to do is, listen, your church matters the most, right? Absolutely. Support your church. Be sure that you're tithing and taking care of your pastors and shepherds and the men that God's appointed to, t- to take care of your soul, to keep watch over your soul in the ministry that they have in your local community. That's what matters most for you, for your family, for the long-term progress of the kingdom of God in, in this country. But that said, if you benefit from the work of Warhorn Media, uh, if your church benefits from the work of Warhorn Media, if you have anything above and beyond that you're capable of giving. Ask yourself, please, what, how much it matters to you that we are able to continue doing what we do. What would you give to keep the doors open here, to keep the podcast coming, keep the books and everything else that we're working on? You know, the things that people don't understand about about books. They look at books or a book catalog and think, oh, books equals money. Passive income. Passive income, all that sort of thing. That's That's just not how it works. Maybe it was that way at a certain point in time in the past, but... That's just not the way things work anymore. If it, you know, if there are other publishers that are larger and are able to have a long enough tail that that moves the needle, that's still not Warhorn. So I was just talking to the guys that run our book production, our our book publishing, this little Who's Jesus book, which we're giving away for free in every e form, whether it's Kindle or PDF or eBooks. It's just a four by six, 85 page book. And the price point on it is $10. And I was asking about it because that seems high to me for, for what it is. And, and they came back and said, well, you know, at this point, a $10 price point nets us less than, fi- less than 50 cents a copy. Right. And that doesn't factor in the man hours that went into production or overhead, which basically means that at $10 a copy, it's a net loss to us. Still, and will be for a long time, and that's the way that we publish in in price point a lot of our books. We want you to have 
them. We want you to be able to afford them. We want you to be able to read them and buy extra copies to give to people. That's just part of what we do. So what that means is we don't depend on income from sales. Sales sales don't do much for us. We depend on the generosity of our supporters who believe in the work that we're doing and want to see it continue and want to see it grow. And so here we are at the end of the year and we depend on on you. So $60,000 is the goal. $60,000 is the number. We brought in $8,400 so far as of this morning, which means we have about fifty-one, fifty-two to go. So take care of your church. Think about it. Pray about it. Talk to your husband. Talk to your wife and see if you're able to help us out. And certainly just pray. Pray. God's provided for us every year so far. We've, we've been blessed to continue doing what we what we do. And We'll do it for as long as God continues to provide. And so, yeah, I don't have much more to say than that. Well, we trust God and we trust that you love us and that you appreciate all that we do and that you want us to be able to continue doing what we do, low cost, free, but that just means those of you who are able, help us out. Yeah, I mean, we've certainly had those conversations. Mm -hmm. You have to imagine we've had the conversations about well, should we charge more? Do we want to put more of the podcast stuff behind paywalls of of various sorts? And it's just like, no, that's this is not that's not what we want to do. It's not nah, not what we're about. Not who we are. Not what we ever want to become. Like we just don't we just don't want it to work that way. But then that that means that every year we're you know in this position where you know we operate month to month in a cash deficit it catches up to us at the end of every year and we're looking at the next year saying well if we don't get a huge big boost shot in the arm i mean the you know we're not making next month's payroll or whatever you know we're not making we may make january's but we're not going to make marches mm. and so we just need that big that big boost that shot in the arm so that we can continue doing what we do and building the catalog and finding more ways to be more helpful and and that sort of thing so but there are all kinds of ways to do that, right? So mm-hmm. you can go and you can give. We do need those generous one-time end-of-year gifts. Yes, warhornmedia.com forward slash give is the place to make a tax-deductible donation like that. Yeah, and that matters a lot, and it especially matters now. We need another fifty-one, fifty-two thousand dollars $52,000 of that to come in. We also need to shore up the monthly deficit. And, mm-hmm. and one of the best ways to do that is to just tell us, vote with your dollars. What do you like? What do you want to support? What do you want to be sure no matter what else happens continues? Mm. Okay, that's why we have Patreon accounts, right? So whether it's Sound of Sanity, Sanity at the Movies, Out of Our Minds, Bookening. The Bookening, go and support those shows at a monthly dollar amount that you can afford. And ask yourself the question, what value do I get out of this on a month-to-month basis? What would I be, if this was to go away, what would I pay to get it back? Mm-hmm. Ask, ask yourself those kinds of questions. The Benjamin J. Solzer Show now on Patreon. Benjamin, <laughs> <laughs> patreon.com forward slash Benjamin J. Solzer. Right. What value you get out of that show. What would you pay <laughs> to destroy that website? <laughs> what would you pay? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, if... It, we have all our music available online for free to listen to chord charts, all that sort of thing. If you like that, so if you like the Psalms projects that we've done in the past, if you if you really want to see that sort of thing come back, we are constantly praying and scheming to make that come back. And we've, we've not found a way yet, but Lord willing, when the time is right and the personnel situation and the situation in our churches is right, that's going to come back. We're not going to 
nobody wants to give up the, those projects. What would be hard though is to have to rebuild the entire apparatus because the apparatus had gone away right. in the meantime. Right. So if you love that sort of thing, you can give even one-time contributions and, you know, drop in memo notes of or what you love, what you appreciate. Same with same with books. You can buy book and you can buy them directly through us in bulk and we'll give you bulk discounts on what is already we're already not making much money off of, but we'll, we'll we'll make it work. Like we want you to have them. But that's another way to just sort of show us what you care about, what you love, what you want to support. With that too, you can be like, well, I really love Daddy Tried or The Grace of Shame. I'm going to put in a bulk order, but I'm not going to take the bulk rate. In fact, I'm going to give a little pay what you want kind of be creative about it, but sure. this little Who is Jesus book, I hope, is something that you can give away, keep on hand, and be happy and proud to just share with friends, share with family, use in your youth group, give to youth group kids, kids in your church, young men, college students, anybody who just needs a, ba- a basic who, who Who is Jesus, God, man, prophet, priest, king. And w- what does that mean from a Reformed covenantal understanding of Scripture? So... And Church of the King does benefit slightly from every sale of that book. So, um, so yeah. Buy one today, buy one for your friend, buy one for your enemy. And that's another way, you know, that, that Warhorn is like, okay, actually, do you know who gets more money from a sale? Uh, uh, bottom line, who gets more money from the sale of that Who's Jesus book? Church of the King actually gets more money than Warhorn does right. from, from the bottom line sale of that book. Greedy, what do you call it? Royalty gobblers. We are not. That's the term. Royalty gobblers. Okay, so warhornmedia.com forward slash give is the place to make those one-time tax-deductible donations. We thank everybody. And guys, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the the, the most requested topic that we've had, I think, for a long time which is the subject of Christian nationalism. And let me say what I've done. I have not read every jot and tittle of Stephen Wolf's book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, which is going around our circles right now. But I do feel that I have extracted the ideas from the book. And so what I'd like to do is present the ideas in the fairest way possible and let us deal with them on the podcast one by one there's like three or four kind of major conceits of the idea of the book that i think we can deal with today sound good sure all right first of all i should say broader more more broadly speaking do you guys have any thoughts on just the the fact of this term christian nationalism that's floating around out there and what it means or doesn't mean or i mean one problem with even reviewing this book is that as as popular as this book has become this book isn't actually representative of what most people think of when they think of christian nationalism if you can even say what most people think of because lots of people think of different isn't that isn't that the point the point of the book isn't the point of the book to be like I'm going to co-opt and redefine this term. Yes, absolutely. Right. So it's, it's that idea. Oh, look, they found a way to label us and to scapegoat us. And 
the smartest and best and most strategic thing to do is to lean hard into it and own the term, but to give our own shape and definition to it. Right. Well, and so I, I listened to a little a part of a podcast with Stephen Wolf, the author of The Case for Christian Nationalism. And what he says is the guy's like, hey, why do you want to co-opt this term? Like this is, you know, people are going to think neo-Nazis. They're going to think all kinds of things. Like what's the deal? And he's like, I'm tired of Christians having to be on the defensive all the time. I want us to have an assertive political posture. We have the truth on our side. We should, this was his phrase, we should have an assertive political posture. And so that's why, that that was basically why he said he wanted to use the term, even though it was going to, in some sense, cause as much confusion as, what do you guys make of that? So I'm not opposed to the, conceptually, to the idea of an assertive political posture. Sure. But I think that you're in a game here. Mm-hmm. And the game is still playing. <laughs> it, 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 the game's still being played on on the terms of the national media and the national media's narrative, and that's the place where I think I don't know about this sort of thing, where I've just been sort of this whole time like, yeah, okay, like, kind of like sure we if we could co opt it, that's great, but we don't actually have the resources. You don't have to, the power. We can't win this fight. You, you don't have the power to win this fight. This is a losing proposition. And so every you you, you sacrifice long term good for short term gain mm. with these sorts of things. So it sounds good. It sounds like the kind of thing that you can if you if you have it. Okay, so, so a lot of friends have 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 walked down this road. So if you're one of those people and you're listening to this show and you've walked down this road, just hear hear what I'm saying because yeah. I, I do want to be careful about this. But this has been my suspicion and my fear and my concern that that, that there's a there's a certain degree of of confidence and arrogance, even mm-hmm. that goes along with the idea that we can actually take and control this narrative by co-opting this terminology and the idea that oh you know this is what marginalized groups do and we become a marginalized group and we just take the term and we lean into it, whether it's queer, whether it's the, the N-word, whether it's... Yankee Doodle Dandy. Y- 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 yeah, Yankee Doodle Dandy. That sort of thing. That's just what we... That's how you win, right? And so there's that, that argument, that side of the argument. But you've got to then be able to create a grassroots movement that is willing to, to own that term and has the power to, or can gain the power to, to wield that term with authority as a, as a minority group. Right. And you could do it through the organs of media, the media effectively. Right. But but the whole play of of the term Christian nationalism is is already it's not a new term that okay, the Christian nationalism, right, is is a pairing of two terms. Right. Right, but nationalism is a term that's already freighted with all kinds of huge cultural meaning and baggage that you can't undo. Yeah. And so can can you can you reframe that in a positive light? Yeah, you can. You can try to. But can you can you control the cultural narrative surrounding it? That's where I think, yeah, no. I don't I don't think you can. What I think you can do is is make some make some hay, make some noise, mm-hmm. make some controversy. It's provocative for sure. Because it's provocative. Right. Right? And so I think you can I think you can create some noise around this sort of thing. But in terms of of being able to swing the conversation and actually own that term mm-hmm. in a positive way, like with a with a long term 
50-year plan, 100-year plan, 20-year plan of 20 years from now, 50 years from now, Christian nationalism will be a positive term that we all own, and it'll mean something, and it, it will go somewhere. I don't know that we can swing this particular narrative, and I think it comes at a, at a long-term cost, or I think that the, there's a lot of potential for it to come at a long-term cost instead of a long-term gain. I think it's more short-term gain mm-hmm. and long-term cost. And I think that this is the way, this is the kind of thing that like may well, instead of be taking, it, it, it thinks it's taking its cues from, from the smart plays of the liberals of the 50s and 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. but may well be taking its cues actually from the short-sighted playbook of the current, the, the current left of the of of the right of the last ten or twenty years, mm-hmm. right? Where 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 the right of the last ten or twenty years is simply playing into more and more of a a shock jock narrative that plays to that plays to its base, mm-hmm. that plays to people who are already on board, right? But inevitably further ghettoizes that community. So what I, what I mean by that is there's a sense. There's this, I, I've co-opted this idea from from Taleb's Nazim Taleb's anti-fragile, which I've talked about on a, on sanity shelves before, and mm-hmm. maybe we'll talk about it more more today. Where he talks about media savvy super pseudo heroes, and that may be his phrase, or it may be mine. Like, you know, when I co-opt something, I the lines do get blurred for me sometimes about what's my framing and what's what's there, yeah, what's theirs, and sometimes I attribute my framing to the author, and sometimes. I attribute the author's framing to myself, and I can't remember. So, but the idea of these media-friendly or media-savvy pseudo heroes, right? What they what they do is they opportunistically latch onto controversy, and because they're savvy with media, they can draw people. They they can they can validate people who feel oppressed. Mm-hmm. They can validate their base. Without moving the needle in, in any in any significant way in a in a positive direction and often moving the needle in a negative direction. What do you mean? Define what you mean by moving the needle. But the, what I mean is you're not changing the cultural conversation in okay. any way, shape, or form. You're not winning people to your argument. You're not converting people. You're not out there changing minds. Right. What you're doing is fi- are finding new ways to validate your static base. And new ways to it, draw people who already agree. They'll find you. Because that's they, right. They already and agree. And so you, you're raising a flag, <laughs> right? But you're raising a flag for the already converted. Right. Right? I think that a lot of what the national media and the left is doing with terms like Christian nationalism is allowing us to organize ourselves, giving us... Giving us a ghetto to, <laughs> to giving organize us, in. G- giving us the ghettos to organize ourselves in. Mm-hmm. So it's easier to sort us later. Mm-hmm. And that's that's my concern, right? You know, so Christian nationalism, okay, once that gets thrown out there, it's associated with the Nazis, it's associated, associated with all these sorts of things. And the more people are like, fine, like, I'll own that. Mm-hmm. I'll just own it. And I'm going to try to reframe it. Well, they're not going to let you reframe it. They're not going to let you. The minute you own that term, they control the narrative and they control the terminology and you've bought into it. And it doesn't matter how you nuance it. Mm -hmm. You're just doing the same thing that Russell Moore was doing 10 years ago by trying to to appease. It's just like the the flip side of the same coin where you're trying to 
co-opt the the left's terms and then nuance it, right? So if, if we're talking about homosexuality, it's like, oh yeah, I'm against reparative therapy. Now let me nuance it. Mm-hmm. Let me nuance what I mean by that. Okay, well, this is sort of the same thing, but the inverse of it, or that's my fear, that's my concern, is like, fine. This is like the, the angry conservative response, but it's the same sort of thing. Fine, I am a Christian nationalist, but let me nuance it for you. Mm-hmm. Let me redefine it for you. They're not going to let you redefine it. Well, what they say is, the, the argument, I think, is, they're going to call us bigots and racists no matter what. And they're going to send us to the camps no matter what. So why should we bother trying to nuance it? Like, like no matter... no. Th- th- but that is what they're doing. That's, what, that's the whole point of this book, is to say, I'm going to seize the term, I'm going to try to define it in advance so that it means something that is not what they want it to mean, right? I'm going to take it, I'm going to define it, I'm going to define the Nazi out of the nationalism. But what Wolf would say, if he was here, I think is, I don't know what he would say, but a plausible devil's advocate argument is, we're going to be not, we're going to be told we're Nazis absolutely no matter what. So we have and a he's tr- right about we have, that, if that's what he would say. Anybody who says that, they're right. And so we have a term that can, at the very least, inspire the base. And either way, we're getting called a Nazi. Really doesn't matter. So why not use the term to inspire the base? Okay, and so now we're in an argument about strategy and tactics. And that's where, you know, maybe the 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 boldness of of sallying forth and grabbing hold of Christian nationalism will be rewarded. No, but I, it I don't, is the long-term play. I still don't think so because that argument forgets something, which is that there actually are, I mean, I know people don't like to believe this because we just have this us versus them narrative that is pervasive across the spectrum, but there actually are people who don't have their minds made up. There are actually, it's not just the base and then the people who are calling us Nazis. Those are not actually the only two groups. There actually but I, is, I agree completely. I think that that's part of buying into the narrative that they're embarked, buying into the framework and playing into their hands is us, them. Us, them has been the narrative for so, it's what they want, that polarized idea of us, them, David, Goliath, whatever. Mm-hmm. That's what the left has done effectively in what you have, to rally their base, and now we're doing the same thing. And what you have to do is you have to shut off the media, shut off social media. Like, if you want to get clear perspective, shut it all down and go out into your community and actually meet real people and talk to real people about things. Yeah. Because just like anything else, people are complicated and their views are complicated and what they're listening to and what they're concerned about and the questions they have. It's just not, it's not the way that it comes. Nobody is who they are on social media anyway. Right. And it's like the conversations that we've had as we've talked about dealing with social media for years now on this show where it's been, okay, like Aunt Sally is a firebrand on, on Facebook when she comments on your Aunt Sally who lives in, in Portland is a firebrand when she takes on your six foot five, 300 pound neighbor in the Midwest on Facebook. But in person, she's the sweetest person that you've ever met. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, social media creates such a, 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 a barrier between us and people, real people face to face and the consequences of having real relational, real relationships with people face to face that we just like, we can spiral out of control. We can, it's just stupid. Yeah. And so I just think like, 
if you wouldn't go to Thanksgiving and walk into Aunt, the room where Aunt Sally's thinking and say, hey, I'm a nationalist, then why would you want to write a book with the another? If it doesn't pass the real life sniff test, like if it's just something that you can kind of own. Then it's only something that you can live in your fantasy bubble in your head. And then what good is that? Mm-hmm. What use is that? And then, okay, if what you're trying to do is create a fantasy bubble that you can live in in your head and then try to like recreate that in real life somewhere, I don't know that that's the way. Yeah. But a lot of these guys, I think, are going to provoke conversations about this at Thanksgiving dinner with family. Yeah. That's actually what they're going to do, and that's what they want. And what they would say, I mean, just to be devil's advocate, or I don't even know if that's what I'm being, but I just think, oh... if you're gonna, if you're to 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 take a different domain, if you're gonna tweet Calvin about predestination, mm-hmm. then you're putting yourself out there to have the conversation with Aunt Sally, who's like, "What? Hey, you know, I don't believe that, and I'm a Christian, and I, that's not in the Bible." And and then you're like, "Well, I've committed myself to having this conversation with Aunt Sally. I think this is important, and I, I I'm not gonna, I don't have to be a jerk about it with Aunt Sally, but I'm not gonna be ashamed to put it on Twitter, even if it makes her mad." And so what if what if that's the tack we take? We just say, yeah, we're the Christian nationalists. I, I still question whether that was actually the best way to be like, ah, I'm, I mean, in other words, what you're describing, I think, is a man who might want to think about a better tactic for speaking to Aunt Sally. It's a, okay, fine. My point's not to speak to Aunt Sally. I, I post things on Twitter. Aunt Sally, you're just collateral damage. <laughs> I mean, am I allowed to post things on Twitter or not? So, so the the thing that the question that I think is super important to ask about all of these sorts of people that we're talking about is the degree to which they have something personal at stake, mm-hmm. right? Like the question with everyone who is sallying forth with their brazen or rowdy or or whatever takes on things is what do you have? What do you stand to gain versus what do you stand to lose? And that's a question that everybody needs to to ask. Well, the answer would be very simple to the people who are attracted to this book is which is what we stand to lose. And I'm not saying this in a sarcastic way. I think this is what they'd really say. What we stand to gain is freedom and what we stand to lose is absolute tyranny. And the moment is now. And if we aren't as loud as possible in asserting our right to exist, then that right is going to go away even quicker than it already has been. Yeah. So let's be loud in public. Right. And so even if Ben was just describing kind of a, a a bad strategy, like the strategy of a weak man, a man who can't bring himself to say anything except for if he throws a grenade first, let's do that. Let's err in that direction. Let's throw some grenades for crying out loud. Yeah. We've been pa- too passive, too weak for okay, too long. So that's all, mm-hmm. that's all conceptual, right? That's all that's, – that's concept, that's concept thinking, mm-hmm. right? That's ideal thinking. We, we stand to – to gain or lose freedom as a concept. Okay, but now personally, what's at stake? What's at stake for S- Stephen Wolf? And what's at stake for somebody who reads Stephen Wolf's book? What does Stephen Wolf stand to gain? What does Stephen Wolf stand to lose? What does somebody who reads his book and parrots his thinking or his phraseology or his terminology on Facebook or Twitter? Right. Relative to Stephen Wolf, what do they stand to gain or lose personally? How much do they have personally at stake? And so, and what they would say if they were here is there's drag queen shows 
in school, drag queen story hour. Like this stuff is hitting home. Yeah, I might not be able to point Jake to a place where it there's an immediate one to one in my life, but there's a one to two or a one to three or something mm. that's just downstream by a year or a month or what how much how much taxes I'm going to be paying if we elect this or that person. Like these things do all hit one way or another. Okay, but again, that's not the question that I'm asking. The question I'm asking is not theoretically, conceptually, what do you stand to gain versus lose? Right, and they would say you're making a false dichotomy. That's what I'm, I, I agree with you. I agree with Jake Mensel, but I don't think that a lot of people out there listening would hear the distinction that you're saying. Okay, so how do I say it better? Okay, so let's just, let's take... Stephen Wolf and everybody in this realm out of the equation for a second. Because we all agree, I mean, this, this, that response, it makes me angry because it's really stupid because what you're doing when you make that response is accusing me of not caring about any of those things. Mm -hmm. And that's just stupid. The question is not, do we care about freedom? Not, do we care about drag show story time? Okay, well, do Black Lives Matter? Yes, Black Lives Matter, but, oh, so Black Lives don't matter. Okay. Well, so do you care about gay drag time story hour or, or do, yeah. Do you but, care about freedom, Jake? Do you, yeah. Yeah. So just sh shut up for a second. Okay. Shut up. Set all these people to the side. Okay. And let's talk about somebody else or some other people or a different class of person. Because what I said before is that this reminds me of the same kind of ineffective uh, imitation on a smaller scale of the same kind of ineffective conservative talk show garbage that that is validating but doesn't move the needle. And so let's pull in Daily Wire for a minute, okay? Let's pull in Ben Shapiro. Let's pull in some of these. I think these are more the model of what people are trying to, to be and to do. Mm -hmm. When Ben Shapiro goes and takes down the 18-year-old feminist and makes a video about it, who has more at stake and who stands to gain more from that video? What, what is he doing? What is he accomplishing? Who, where is the needle moving? Zero percent of anywhere is the actual answer to the question. All, all he's doing in those situations is validating the kind of person who wants a hero, who's good at media, who's good at talking, right? So he has a, he's, he's got a quick mind, He's quick with his words, and he can take down an 18-year-old feminist on a college campus. And that feels really good to see somebody do that, mm -hmm. especially when you feel like you can't. You can't stand, talk down the shrill 19-year-old girl in your local coffee shop, you know, or whatever. But Ben Shapiro can. Okay, well, what that does is it means Ben Shapiro stands more to gain from doing that sort of thing than he stands to lose. Well, that's not the actual work. And I'm not saying that there's not any value whatsoever in that. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, okay, Ben Shapiro can build a following. He can build a platform for himself, and he can profit quite a bit off of that sort of thing uh, without actually having much to sacrifice, without losing much in the process. Like, has Ben Shapiro gained or lost more by being honing his ability to be a conservative talking head? He has gained more. He is a very wealthy man. He has a lot of name recognition, and he's very well insulated. Okay, and if Ben Shapiro gets, is he cancelable? Like, okay, so 
what then happens? What happens is, and maybe Ben Shapiro is not the greatest example of this sort of thing, but what happens is as these, again, to use that, that term, as these sort of more media savvy pseudo heroes, as they uh, create space for themselves to validate people and draw them to themselves, what they actually end up doing is insulating themselves from sacrifice mm-hmm. while exposing their followers to the cost of their of the positions that they create. Right. Billy Bob that reads the book and decides to own the term Christian nationalist actually could lose his job. He stands to lose a lot more than the guy who's out there profiting off of owning the term Christian nationalism. Right. Right. He's drawn enough people to himself that owning Christian nationalism is profitable for him in a way that it's he's simply passing the costs on down the line to the people who are buying the term. Now, I'm not saying that this is what Stephen Wolf is doing. I'm not accusing him of being a profiteer or anything like that. I'm just saying, like, this is the kind of thing that conservatives have gotten really good at. Right. Conservative talk, conservative commentary has gotten really good at profiteering off of validating the the marginalized conservative and using their ability to validate the marginalized conservative to insulate themselves while exposing the their base to the cost of their positions and not moving the, the needle in any significant way culturally. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm concerned that we not fall into no matter how, how we approach these sorts of things. Again, I think a lot of it is strategy and tactics, right. but the question is one of wisdom and folly. And so somebody, you know, devil's advocate might turn around and say, well, I don't know, Jake, like if you tried to own if you had the guts to go out and own the phrase Christian nationalism, I think it might cost you a lot. I think it might be costing Stephen Wolf a lot. Mm-hmm. So, so people will certainly bring up the example of his friend who was on a podcast with him who just lost his job or something like that. And I know that story is more complicated and the guy said some things that even he admitted were racist. But people will say that we have some real life examples of places where Stephen Wolf and his friends have, have sacrificed. And... I don't know. All I, all I want to say about any of this is it's a complex thing and it requires a lot of wisdom, a lot of prudence. And I can't say I see a great deal of evidence that like, like, okay, yes, sometimes you need to be the guy that inspires everybody else to go make the sacrifice. That's actually a thing. The general sends people into battle. The general does not get shot at. Those people do. Sometimes like, like you can't just say, Oh, well, the leader didn't sacrifice this. Like, okay, sure. But you want a general who's thought a lot about it, who's being strategic, who's being wise, who's being compassionate, who's being godly in the way that he is deploying his troops. You want a inspirational figure who's being wise and compassionate and godly and discerning in the way that he's inspiring people and what he's inspiring them to do. And I think at the very least... You can question the wisdom of promoting this book in this way and owning the term in this way. Yeah, and and that's you know, and what you know, I know that there will be people that that hear us say that sort of thing and are like, "Well, okay, that's just the kind of gutless cowardice that got us into this position in the first place." And it's like, "Well, okay, well." We'll see. And I hope that if we're proved wrong, we'll have the humility to say, yeah, okay, well, we should have been on board owning the Christian nationalist movement 
and helping reshape and redefine it from the beginning, mm. if that's the way it pans out. I just... I don't think it's going to pan out that way. But yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I would want to have the humility to own that. But it, I just feel like it's like, well, there's bad guys arrayed against us, so I guess our only weapon is the Hulk. And it's like, eh, you know, I don't know. Captain America seems pretty good. Iron Man, like there's there's different ways to fight this bad guy. We don't, we don't, just because the Hulk is big and mean and green and fun to watch doesn't mean he's the only one that we're going to deploy. Like, let's have some discernment. I don't know. You guys want to say anything else about the title of this book before we, what we haven't done, just to be clear, is dealt with any of the actual content of this book. It's possible that we say, okay, it was not wise to try and co-opt this term, to try and own this term, but we still like what they're, what, what the, uh, the ideas behind this are. Sure. And, you know, like I said, you know, I've not, I've not read the book. I've not read a review of the book. Mm -hmm. I've just been hesitant to, I've been raising my eyebrows at this, at, at the strategy of, of it all. Yeah. I mean, I raised my strategies at the, I raised my strategies at the eyebrows of it all enough <laughs> that I didn't really want to do this book. I didn't want Sound of Sanity to dignify it by engaging with it. But we've just had a lot of people on our Discord and a lot of friends and fans and followers like just feel like they need to deal with this somehow. Like it's it's around. So I thought it was worth talking about. Okay, so let me take you guys briefly through some of the main arguments of this book. First of all, do you guys have any problem with the idea of a nation that has Christian leaders that are... Of course not. Our job is to disciple no. the nations. And if we're successful in discipling the nations, the nations will be Christianized. Do you have any problem with laws that support Christianity? And, I'm for it. Yeah, me too. Let's go. Let's go. Any problems with that? But nope. yeah, See, I don't have any problems with it either, but... The interesting thing about this book is... Give me Geneva. Yeah. But, okay, well, let's just go through it. So, Give you Geneva, like Calvin's Geneva? Yeah. <clears throat> I don't feel that way. Well, we can't get into executing heretics today. We only have so much. We can't get into... <laughs> <laughs> we try not to do that on this podcast. But let's not. Let's not, because that's another podcast. So here is Stephen Wolf's definition, basically... Of, of Christian nationalism. What he says it boils down to is a Christian nation which acts for its own good, both earthly and heavenly. So the way he, did, he wants to define nationalism is a nation that acts for its own good. And he would put this in opposition to the modern global movement. Globalism. Globalism, globalism is his big enemy in this book. And, and the idea that we can't act for our own good. So he then spends, so this whole book is written in a way that is, it's not like super academic. It's not actually academic. Like modern academic stuff is just jargon and it's actually unreadable. This book's readable, but it is written in a academic style. And so you have to wade through a lot to sort of draw out what his actual terms and definitions are. And he says he wants to treat his readers like adults. He wants to give them something to really chew on. I disagree with that philosophy of writing. I think clarity should always be the goal of any communication. But uh, we don't have to 
nitpick too much about that. So he really actually, weirdly, for a book that is all about this definition, a Christian nation, uh, Christian nationalism is a Christian nation which acts for its own good, both earthly and heavenly, where he really gets into trouble. And we don't have time to talk too much about this, but he doesn't really want to define what a nation is. Like you'd think we, we, we would need to say exactly in black and white what a nation is. He, he just spills a lot of ink on countless pages talking about the experience of a nation. And, and so you kind of get the idea that a nation is common people with a common heritage. You know, I think he finally says a nation is defined as those who share a culture, similar people. And he says such people will naturally have their own good in mind. They want to promote this good. And let me just stop there. Are we with him so far or or not? Like admitting that you guys haven't read the book, like you can only go off of what I'm telling you. So are you mm-hmm. with me so far <clears throat> or not? And if people want to say, Nathan, you did a bad job of representing the book, that's fine. We can talk about it. But we're, we'll just deal with my representation of the book today. I'm not against you, but sounds squishy like i i would prefer to think in terms of maybe localism or subsidiarity but right well and so would he like he talks a lot about localism he it it just it it does it gets really squishy because he wants to say a nation is people who share a culture and of course he gets into all kinds of he never wants to defend himself against he's he's adamantly opposed to defending himself against charges of racism he does not think he should have to do that and yet, the other thing he does is he uses the term nation and the term ethnicity kind of interchangeably. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that kind <coughs> of sounds like what he's saying is that all the whiteies should be for the whiteies. But good good faith reading, I don't think that's what he's saying. And I've heard him talk. I don't think that that's what he's saying. He is saying all the the cultural whiteies should be the cultural whiteies. If we share a heritage, if that heritage is connected to a place, to land to common experience. It's not that some guy who was fifth generation Chinese couldn't share all that, but probably most of us would be white because that's how you happen to share a heritage. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I'm being maybe unclear, but I'm, I think I'm effectively communicating his Lack of, lack of clarity because he just goes on and on and on about this but he wants to fight globalism he wants to fight multiculturalism he sees these as completely suicidal and he wants to make the case that the gospel people are naturally drawn to other people like them they want to form tribes they want to form nations and the gospel does not abrogate this this is his big thing and so this is where, spoiler alert, I think we begin to get really, really weird. So he wants to make two points. He wants to make the point that even in our fallen state, we have the ability and necessity of drawing from our own nature, from our natural inclinations. And, and then he wants to say, and, and the inclination to make nations, whatever those are, is natural. So he goes into this big thing about the Garden of Eden and pre-fall, pre-lapsarian time. And he says, God gave us in our perfect form, he gave us natural gifts, things like reason, things like understanding, and supernatural gifts, which are the things that lead us to salvation. And at the fall, the natural gifts, things like reason, were corrupted. The supernatural gifts were lost. So the fall took away our ability to ever 
get to God on our own. But it did not take away our ability to ever reason our way to earthly good. It corrupted it. He would say it corrupted it. But basically, if we have an inclination like to get married or to form a nation, (laughs) then that's a good, it can be corrupted. We can become lustful. We can become whatever. But those inclinations are basically good. So he goes on for a long time making that case. And he specifically says at the opening of the book, I will not argue from the Bible because I'm not a theologian. And so that's just not my, my bailiwick. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to argue from, from sort of natural, natural law, and I'm going to argue from the Reformed tradition. I'm going to assume the Reformed tradition, and then I'm going to build on that, which is fair enough. But then he gets, this is his version what I just described is his version of the Reformed tradition. It's what he would say a man like John Calvin says. It's certainly how he would portray all the the guys, you know, your Bavinics and whatever, your, your, your guys downstream. And, and so basically he says, man did not lose knowledge of the principles that concern his outward life. Like we're, we still have that within us, even post-fall. And then he goes one step further and he says, now let's look pre-fall. And let's see that even then we have inherent in the creation mandate that we would form tribes, that people would band together around plate. I think I actually have a quote here. So it's it's, it's first Genesis 26, 28, be fruitful and, and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, exercise dominion, all that stuff. So he basically says, if man had never fallen, then, quote, they would have formed communities, distinct or separate nations. Because even unfallen man would have been bounded by geography, areability, and other factors, each community would have been culturally distinct, since they would have at least been somewhat separated from others and would have developed their own way of life and culture, though without any sin. That's one quote. It's on page 21. Another quote. Adam's progeny would have formed many nations on earth, and thus the formation of nations is part of God's design and intention for man. Unquote. So this is... His entire argument. It's a big leap. <clears throat> it's a big leap. It's a lot of speculation. It's so speculative. Guys, it's crazy. You cannot build a case for a movement based he on a prelapsarian foundation, a speculative foundation. That's just not... <clears throat> like, I was ready to... And I was ready to hear all kinds of arguments, but if that's the foundational argument, we need somebody... Somebody it, needs to write a better book. Somebody needs to write a, a, a better book with a better foundation it's if just, we're going to co-opt this term. Well, and that's what made me so really... the strategy of it all, yeah. and then there's the execution. And if you're representing the foundational execution of this book, well, then well, I, don't, I so, don't know how we get off the ground with it. Here's how he bolsters it. He bolsters it with quote after quote from Calvin, from Augustine, from other guys. And he's obviously very knowledgeable about... The, the whole world of of natural law of of these arguments that have it's happened. Like Thomism. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, he says Tom. He says he wants to make the case that the Reformation actually has more in common with classical Thomism than than we think. So he wants to say everybody that says, well, obviously Calvin in the Institutes says our nature is completely corrupt. They haven't understood Calvin. Calvin actually has more in common with Thomas. With the Thomas. That's his whole case, and he. 
very, I think, selectively chooses quotes from the institutes and from different things to make this case. But man, it's one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode because it is written in a way that could be very intimidating to someone who just hasn't encountered a lot of academic writing. But man, it's pretty silly. Or read a lot of the source material. Or read a lot of the source material. But it's pretty silly. And I don't pretend to be an expert, but I have, as it happens, read that section of the Institute many, many times. And yes, Calvin does say when we are, when, when our natures are corrupted, we still have the ability to make good art. We still have the ability to mm-hmm. organize ourselves in political systems. Calvin says, basic observation will tell you we can still seek some earthly good. But Calvin does not create this sort of binary where we lost all the supernatural gifts completely, but the natural gifts are, are still... No, that's well, not how he thinks. No, Cal- what, what Calvin thinks is that the natural gifts are very, very, very corrupted. I mean, of course he does. He's John Calvin. He, he created the T in total depravity. Like, <clears throat> it's silly to think that Calvin would think anything else. You can find isolated little quotes that make it sound like Calvin is saying something like this, but... You got to take him on the whole. Right. And on the whole, Calvin is Mr. Like, we suck everything. I mean, not to stereotype John Calvin in the other direction, but I mean, come on. He's John Calvin. He's like, humanity is lost. We are in a morass. Our best philosophies are total garbage. Like, yeah. I mean, Calvin all over the place is like, yeah, we're just, we're really dumb. We're really dumb. Yeah. Like, that's, that's, I mean, you can't. You can't read the Institutes and not find Calvin just saying, yeah, we're really stupid. We're really foolish. We're really dumb. If there's a way to corrupt things and to mess this up, we'll find it. Like Calvin would never have us Lord lean on our mercy. own inclinations. To he would, he would not be an idealist page. about something like this. Right, no. I just He was, he was a pragmatist in the sense of he's going to work with what the Lord gave him in Geneva and sorry. Yeah, no, I really think, if anything, Calvin was a political pragmatist. I think that's a that's a pretty good way of putting it. Yeah. Well, and Calvin for and being, especially when it comes to counteracting or or just making accommodation for the evil of man, right? Like all all of our sort of like you, the concept of checks and balances. Like you can trace that political theory back to Calvin. Like mm-hmm. the the idea that what we actually need to do is not optimistically make space for man's greater good, but we need to just sort of find ways to counteract and check our evil inclinations. That's much more Calvin. Right. Well, and Calvin is the master of not speculating about things that that's we just right. don't know about. Yeah, He's that's, a, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah, that's the thing that like is the most anti-Calvinist of all of this is like Calvin is like just open. Calvin would have I defy scorn for you. this book. I defy you to open the Institutes and not find, or a commentary, and not find on any book of the Bible in his commentary, just scorn for the people that speculate about what what something could possibly mean that's just not evident or clear. Or it's just like, he's just constantly like railing He hates against, that stuff. He hates speculative theology. Right. He hates it so much. And he's just constantly saying, look, what's clear is what matters the most. Like, let's more than enough for us to think about. And let's shut your mouths about all your speculations. They do nobody any good except flatter your egos. Like, yeah. And he knows that when we become speculative, like, like Stephen Wolf does, we just always bring our own assumptions. Like Stephen Wolf likes, wants to make a case for nationalism. 
And so he's just kind of randomly decided that, well, yeah, obviously there'd be lots of nations. It's like you could just as as easily speculate that we would have had this amazing Edenic global society where everything flowed through our federal guess, head. Adam, guess and, what? Yeah. Part of the curse of the fall is not knowing, not knowing yeah. what coulda, woulda, shoulda, anything. We don't know. We're not to know. The most Calvin will say, and this is just classical Reformed theology, is that it was a time of probation in Eden. Yeah. But it's not going to go farther than that. No, no, no. I mean, and none of your great Reformers would. So this guy is wildly selective in the quotes that he finds, and it's, it can be really intimidating for someone approaching this book. Okay, we're making a lot of assertions about Calvin. Go read him yourself. Test us and test Wolf on yeah, this, guys. Great. But we're right. Yeah, I'm just not, saying. I'm not saying you won't find a sentence in Calvin if you're looking for it, where you'll say, "Wow, that really sounds like Calvin is out on a limb speculating or something like that." But 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 that's why, or or like Calvin supports this point of view. Even like like you, you'll find a sentence where Calvin talks about. I know because Stephen Wolf quotes them, so I've just read them. You know, I mean, he, he there are sentences where Calvin talks about our natural inclinations and how they can work and stuff like that. But it is in a much broader context and i mean i you know what keeps going through my mind is the tower of babel <clears throat> and everyone was oh, yeah, like we're gonna course. make one giant nation and god's like let me come down and basically curse you mm-hmm. and break this up because it's not gonna end it this this does not honor me somehow and we're not gonna do it and now you're gonna be cursed you're gonna all gonna be distinct you're going to have your own interests, your own languages, and by extension, you're going to all war against each other and hate each other. Well, and because Stephen Wolf disingen- I'm sorry, but disingenuously says, I- I'm not arguing from Scripture, or, or we're just going to assume Scripture. We're just going to assume the Reformed <laughs> tradition. And then he defines it however he wants and proceeds to argue from this <laughs> straw sort of foundation he's built. Because he does that, he is a le- he-, he doesn't have to deal with all the Bible verses about like being one in Christ, Greeks and Jews. There's no barbarians that the enslaver free. Right. Yeah, but be careful about going there. Your mind wants to go there, but male and female is right there too. And so we already, nobody in this room actually thinks that we're erasing categorical distinctions in those places. No, and I certainly, I don't, quoting it. Right, and I don't want to erase Mm. nations. I don't want to erase Americans being for Americans. That's fine. People can love their communities. It's just... Stephen Wolf feels like he's so. Uh, I don't. It's, I don't want to be judgmental about where he was coming from, but it has the feeling, whether it's true or not, that he was so insecure about his position that he just wanted to make it into these big, brash, universal sort of truth with a capital T type things. When, when instead, it could have been a lower P proposition that went alongside other propositions that are also in the Bible, and they all kind of had to work together and have attention. You know, like life, like like the universe that God built. But instead, he he wants everything. He wants our entire lives to bend around his idea of what nations are. And so he has to build it into prelapsarian society, and then he has to build it into our natural fallen state inclinations. And he just has to do all this weird bending and twisting work to get it there. And it's like, dude, you, you didn't have to do that. You, you could have just said, oh, well, here's some good reasons why – we need a Christian nation. You didn't have to. You didn't have to ground it there, but you wanted to because you wanted it. Yeah. You wanted your argument to feel what? I mean, I don't know. Why do you metaphysical divine yeah. of divine origin? Actually, this is like an argument for the divine right of kings. You didn't want to make a, an argument for prudence. You didn't want to make a wisdom argument. You wanted to make. You wanted to ground this in some kind of transcendent moral 
thing. And it's just a wild overreach. And it's not helpful to our cause. I mean, I suppose a devil's advocate might say, well, Nathan, if you agree with where he went, then, or if you kind of agree with where he went, then why quibble over? Well, and the other part of the devil's advocate argument is better to take action and sloppy action in the right direction than to sit on the sidelines, to scoff, to critique. Somebody had to, somebody had to, had to forge ahead. And so his forging ahead makes space for somebody to come along and make the the better argument or the better case or to build on it or whatever. But he's, you know, he's making headway. He's claiming territory. He's claiming the beachhead. He's planting the flag. And hopefully he'll be surpassed by better men with better arguments or something like that, right? That would be the I mean, response. I, and I suppose that's fine, but that doesn't preclude me from saying this is terribly sloppy and not very helpful. Right, that's right. And also, hey... <laughs> You could get shot running out onto a beachhead like that. Like, Why do it at all if you're going to do it that way, basically? Yeah. Like, like, okay, yeah, sometimes it's good to do the bad version of something, but you know what's even better is to do, to, the, to good do the good version. And then it's not churlish for me to point that out. It's not – and for someone to sneer back at me and say, well, you're just a critic who's not trying to move this thing forward at all. It's like, no, I'm a critic who's trying exactly to move this thing forward by saying that this is – a a false bat, start. A false start. Yeah. And, and a wild overreach. And that's bad. And, man, it does make me angry him misrepresenting someone like John Calvin. Like, JC doesn't deserve that. So let me – let me. There's this, this is a big book. It's 500 pages. There's all kinds of things. I didn't realize it was that big. It's, it's really big. And there's a lot of stuff in it. I mean, there's, there's stuff that we could talk about. Just wild. He has a section of aphorisms at the end. Like it's a classic five and a half by eight trade paperback style. I got the Kindle, okay. Um, so I don't know, but I yeah, know. yeah, I think it's pretty standard. I, I heard about this in section, so I read Kevin, or at least skimmed a lot of Kevin DeYoung's review, but, which is wonderful. So. A great Gospel Coalition ar- 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 article, also links to a guy named uh, Neil Shenvey. Neil Shenvey, and he's he's awesome. If you want a more in depth kind of criticism of of this book, I would highly recommend both those articles. I'll link to them both in the show notes. Especially Shenvey does a great job of showing. Just how bad this book is, honestly. But what were you we saying? Just that I was just looking forward to these these af- talking about these aphorisms. That's well, the all. aphorisms. I don't know that we need to spend a lot of time on them. I mean, he doesn't really. It's where he really does just feel like he's playing to the base. He starts railing against the gynocracy, and there's a section you guys may have seen on Twitter. People have screenshotted it and, and shared it, where he he rails against sort of overweight pastor you know so we must have an austere ascetic in our churches and yet he sees these like he goes to a pca church and he sees fat people overweight i don't know what he says so there's a lot of really sloppy kind of just grenade throwing in that section and a lot of it i disagree with but also that section kind of i think says it's sloppy it's like Ah, right. I've written a book. I don't really know exactly the way forward. That's for all of us to figure out. Now, here's some, here's some thoughts. Here's some beat poetry. Here's some like, here's some stuff. And he quotes Nietzsche enough that I think he's probably thinking of Nietzsche the way that Nietzsche would kind of almost reads like a thus spoke mm-hmm. Zarathustra kind of like. Well, here's a little word picture about this, and here's a word picture of this. So it's weird. I don't know what else to say about the aphorisms. I mean. If the whole book had been that, just like here are some sort of okay word pictures that might give you some handles for thinking about things, 
without actually me trying to pretend like I'm making the definitive argument rooted in all of history. I actually think I would have liked it better, but maybe we wouldn't be talking about it then. I don't know. So the other mm. big thing, the other big thing that I think is worth talking about, though, is his conception of c- civil disobedience. And he is just mathematically neat in the way that he does this. So his basic idea is God has willed that the government reward good and punish evil. Anytime a governor does this, he is doing God's will and being a governor. Anytime a governor does not do this, he is not doing God's will and thus not acting as a governor. So we can always disobey any unjust command of any governor because they had no right to make that command in the first place. Of course, we can overthrow tyrants because we're not overthrowing the office. We're overthrowing the man who has usurped the office. God did not give men the power to be tyrants. So when we resist a tyrant, we do not resist what God has ordained. Romans 13, he deals with very curtly. He says, you know, people use this to say we should obey authority, but obviously that's stupid. He says, and people make a lot of hay out of Nero being the emperor, but he says, Nero always had authority to command what is just and not to command what is evil. So it is right for, the Paul, for Paul to tell us to obey Nero when he commands what is just. And uh, the implication being, of course, that we should disobey when Nero commands what is evil. The Christians in Romans 13 times should have obeyed all the good stuff, jettisons the bad, and overthrown Nero if they had the chance which, of course, they had no hope of doing. So why would Paul bring it up? It's, it was just an abstraction that the Apostle Paul That's awesome. wouldn't. Um, so, so you just, all you have to do as a, someone under authority is... what is right in their own eyes. Yeah. All you have to do as someone under authority is just wait. Oh, uh-uh, you're not acting as a governor. Now I get to overthrow you. <laughs> That's how the rules work. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's wildly irresponsible. I mean, I'm glad my wife doesn't do this to me. Tim, our pastor Tim Bailey likes to say this about COVID people. What would they do if their wives treated them the same way they treat the government? And it's really true. Like, what if my wife was keeping score all the time? Like, well, that was godly, so I guess I'll obey that one. But that one wasn't. Uh, now so you're I guess a tyrant. I, now, now you're a tyrant. You've you've you usurped the office, which I still respect. By the way, it's kind of what Jake was talking about. These leaders that do these wild things to play for their base without ever thinking about the actual ramifications for the little people. He's just given people the right to not pay their taxes if they think the taxes are ungodly, to disobey any law. It's very easy. My taxes go to support Planned Parenthood. Forget taxes. Ergo, I don't. It is coercive for the government to ask me to put a seatbelt on or to do anything that I don't. It, it really. Which one of you guys said, and every man did what was right? That was me. In his own eyes. I mean, yeah. that is. I mean, that's what happens is you, you make every, every man the judge of every individual action of every authority figure, Mm -hmm. right? Then that's it. Well, this sort of dismissiveness of authority is, this book is terminal with it. He's very not cool in the way that he talks about pastors. He really relegates them. I don't have a specific quote here. I read about that. But he just, he he wants to make sure we we understand that they're not the ones that are going to lead any kind of cultural revolution. The civil sphere is not their jurisdiction. And so... They will tend to our souls while we do the work of this book. And I don't think I'm being unfair when I portray it as kind of having that condescending attitude. I was extremely uncomfortable with the way he talked about ministers of the word. He also goes on about the Christian prince, you know, the hypothetical Christian prince who would call councils, call synods, make sure people were attending church, things like that, punish heresy. And he doesn't really, he doesn't want the pastors 
to be involved in that. He describes them. I forget the metaphor he uses, but he's like they're they're like a good vice president or something. Like they they could give some advice to to the to the just Christian king who's actually doing the work of supporting God's truth. So he has like no understanding, at least that's represented in this book, of the keys of the kingdom. And I don't know. Again, it just feels like. He's so desperate to make a case and so maybe insecure about his case that he just has to throw everything into his idea of of civil government. And of course, he would say that's not what he's doing, but he's wrong. So his Romans 13 section made me really uncomfortable. I mean, it's just one of those classic like God chose not to qualify his word here and you're going to come along and qualify everything about it. Like God wanted us to deal with, oh no, just obey your the authorities that I put over you. He didn't want to write in the clause that says, unless and less and less and less. And you're going to do nothing but give me unless and less and less and less. And I and I guess the devil's advocate here would say, Well, Nathan, don't you think there is a time to disobey the government? And if so, don't we need an exact blueprint for when and where and how? And isn't it good to have mathematical precision and knowing when? I don't know. What did you guys say to that devil? I'm so tired of that devil. I barely want to talk to him. But Mathematical precision, no, it's not good because God didn't give it to us. So it's not something we need. Wait, you think we might need to live by faith and have discernment? I'm not trying to go that far. That's kind of radical. But yes, that's right. Well, and once again... He wouldn't like someone saying to all the wives of the world, to, to Mrs. Wolf. I think there is one. He wouldn't like someone saying to Mrs. Wolf. Now, you understand, when your husband is upholding his authority that God's given him, then you obey him. When he usurps it by commanding you to do anything wrong, then obviously you do not obey that. We have just made Ephesians 5 very simple, even though God, for some reason, felt the need to leave it unqualified when he said, obey your husband and everything. I think Stephen Wolf would be very happy to leave that section unqualified, more or less. So what does he think about, maybe you're getting there, but what does he say about the church? What is the church? What is the church? What's it for? The church is for tending to those, if we're going with the sort of Thomistic binary that he has, then the church is for tending to those supernatural things to our, you know, the church deals with our souls, civil society deals with absolutely everything else. That might be a little unfair. Like I said, I haven't read every jot or tittle of this book, but he seems to he seems to be pretty dismissive of the church, ultimately, from what I could tell. Very lame. Yeah. The church is the royal nation of God, and the church is where we get diversity and unity, and the church is where well, yeah, all that's, those things happen. That's where he really... I mean, we are a royal priesthood, a nation. Aren't we called a nation? We are called yep. a, ch- a yeah. holy nation or a holy nation. nation. And yeah, like mm-hmm. he just doesn't deal with any of that stuff. He's just, yeah. he just like, and he doesn't have to because he's laid these ground rules at the beginning where he's, he's not going to deal with the Bible except for all the places that he wants to deal with the Bible and use the Bible. And so I'm sorry, I don't want to be condescending to the man, but for someone who says, I want to make a robust argument, something that men will appreciate, something that rational, like people used to argue about things and they'd have their premises and then they'd build an argument. He goes on and on about that. And then he builds such a weak, disingenuous, insecure, prevaricating, non-argument. And I just hate to think that there's 
anyone listening to this podcast that would be intimidated by it or that would think that they had anything much to gain from it. This book is just not a good use of your time. I think I think we can all say, hey, let's build the church, build our communities, and work towards a godly nation. I, I mean, a, a moral nation, a, a nation where the rule mm-hmm. of law supports both tables of the the, the Ten Commandments. Fine with me. Yeah, yeah. we we can all, we can say that without without this. I mean, I don't know. Again, I, people might say, "Well, Nathan, if this is just getting there by another route, it's not getting there." Yeah, I don't. I just don't this think is not. This is not getting. It's not getting there. I mean, I saw in a review that he calls the divine the prince the closest thing to God that we have on earth, and he calls him a lowercase g God. He does do that. And so that's just that's just paganism again, actually. I mean... He's going to say it came out of Psalm 84. Yeah, I know. Uh, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's the... Fair enough. Except I accept that. But also, the context makes it clear. If, if, if this lowercase g God has authority... To define doctor, to define dogma in the land, which he does, and, which which he does, then then you've you've you you've crossed the line from the Bible's usage of lowercase g God to something else, as it applies to men. Yeah, I mean, so much of this book is novel, not a novel, but it's it's just like one guy's weird speculations. It's not rooted in the historical Protestant ethic or tradition, like he pretends it is. It's disingenuous that he makes it sound like it is. If you want a robust defense of a nation being Christian, then this just ain't it. Ain't it. And I, I wish I could say, and so read something else. Something else, but I can't say that because I don't know what the other thing would be. But this is only going to cloud the issue and it's only going to I don't know. Why do I think it's so dangerous? I don't know. It's it's drawing all this stuff from Old school Catholicism, like it's not going to root you in a love for authority. It's not actually going to root you in a love for the church. The church. It's going to do quite the opposite on both those fronts. And no matter how evil Joe Biden is, those aren't good things. Those are very destructive things. And I think all three of us have lived long enough to see those things be destructive again and again and again in people's lives watch people self-destruct as they become angry with all the authorities that God's put over them yep. as they, they give their lives to some fantasy of the perfect city state. And mm-hmm. this book will draw, draw you away from the things of the gospel. That's, that's my assessment. It's important to remember that Jake and Ben haven't actually read the book, but I think I've done a fair job of representing it. If I haven't, then feel free to get in touch with us and we'll, refine this a little bit, folks. But anything else to say about this topic or Christian nationalism or no anything? Nah. All right. Like we said at the top, at the top warhornmedia.com forward slash give. Uh, until next time. Stay sane.